Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPN. This week, Lumpin' Radio chatted with an expert on Jerry Rubin and the Yippies, discussed architecture's PR problems, and heard from a new artist on mirror paintings. All this plus the Trump Diaries and much more, only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for April 13, 2018. Hitting Left spoke with Pat Thomas, the author of Did It, Yippie to Yuppie, Jerry Rubin, American Revolutionary. Thomas talked about Rubin's activism, the lessons the yippies have for modern protesters, and how 1968 still informs today's politics. Hitting Left with the Klonsky Brothers airs every Friday at 11 a.m. Let's go back, let's, let's go back a little bit to uh, uh, Jerry's days as an anti-war uh, anti uh, Civil rights uh, organizer, okay. organizer of some of the uh, biggest protests, anti-war protests we had in this country. Uh, what, uh, tell us a little bit about th that Jerry. Okay, yeah. Well, that's my favorite Jerry. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> so Jerry arrives at UC Berkeley in '64 at the height of the free speech movement, and he starts started something called the VDC, Vietnam Day Committee, along with Stu Albert and some other guys. And Jerry organizes something called the Teach-In. And for 24 hours it, on, outside the UC Berkeley campus was 20,000 people listening to Krasner, Phil Oaks, Norman Mailer, uh, Dr. Spock, um, a whole bunch of other guys I'm forgetting. Carl Oglesby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. Then Jerry starts, again, when I say Jerry, I mean Jerry with a bunch of other people, uh, starts laying down on the, on, the, on the tracks as the troop trains go through Berkeley to Port of Oakland. So Jerry gets subpoenaed by HUAC, you know, House on American Activities Committee, and Jerry has the bright idea, excuse me, to rent a revolution, American Revolutionary War outfit and print up a stack of the Declaration of Independence. So he subpoenaed into the House of Representatives, but the minute he walks in with that Revolutionary War outfit, he's arrested by federal marshals. And he's like, hey, you can't arrest me. You asked me to come here. That makes front page news, and that gets the attention of David Dillinger in New York, legendary pacifist, and also a relatively unknown Abby Hoffman. You know, Abby has not been on the front page of the newspaper yet, and Abby makes a mental note, I gotta meet this guy. So after that, Jerry's invited to New York by Dellinger to lead a march on Washington. And before he can do that, him and Abby meet up, and those guys, along with Jim Ferrat, a bunch of other people, decide to throw $1 bills onto the New York Stock Exchange, which shuts the New York Stock Exchange down. I don't even think an atomic bomb can shut the New York Stock Exchange down. So that's well, more than shutting it down, I mean, uh, they had these, uh, they had these uh, guys down on the floor uh, chasing dollar bills. Well, that's what shut it down, because the traders were like, well, here's money right at my feet. Why do I want to buy and sell? Um, well, they, these, are, these are examples of, uh, I mean, Jer Jerry and Abby both understood that if you could, if you could make a spectacle, well, that's uh, right. then you could, capture, uh, you could capture the media. Well, you know, you guys are SDS guys, and, and one yeah. of the yin-yangs in my book is that a lot of SDS people were not big on the yippies because they didn't think they were serious. And yet, you know, the way that Jerry and Abby looked at it is by using that media spectacle, they were grabbing the front page more than like a long 
you know, political science essay. Well, we, we, we SDSers learned from them. Yeah. At least I did. I mean, I would, right. I, especially Abby, I used to, I used to watch him, mm-hmm. uh, get up in the middle of a, in a crowd of, at, during the Columbia Dumb university students. strike, sure. uh, student strike. I see him get up in the middle of the, uh, uh, of the floor yeah. or just out in the hallway. And next thing I know, there's a crowd around him and he's, yeah. and, uh, I just admired the hell out of the way he, you know, he he uh, he did that. <coughs> yeah. And, um, <coughs> yeah. I mean, and I'm in the music so business, and we, I always tell musicians, no one ever got a Grammy for being subtle. Right? Yeah. So we didn't we didn't uh, not take him seriously, not take the uh, the Yippies seriously, not take Abby and Jerry seriously. We did take him seriously, mm-hmm. and we worked together with them on a lot of different things. Sure. Uh, when the Democratic convention. Uh, protests were organized. Mm-hmm. Uh, we opposed them at first. Right. We opposed the. Uh, we opposed the. Uh, what we saw as an invasion of uh, of uh, white uh, young mm-hmm. hippies coming out uh, to Chicago and uh, you know doing their uh, Pegasus thing and right. <laughs> sleeping in the park, you know, and all that. And sure. but bringing down heat on those of us who were. I guess we did think we, we took ourselves a lot more seriously. Yeah. And we, we, we had people doing community organizing, and then we mm-hmm. were concerned about the people in the black community yeah. who would take the heat and the repression after the Yippies all went home. Right. But, sure. but later, when we, after we met with them and saw, the, uh, saw their seriousness mm-hmm. and also saw the, uh, you know, the size of uh, the crowds of young people coming in, yeah. uh, many of them coming and crashing on our floors. And, you right. Know, then we we changed our our views and we yeah. we, we joined in with the in the leadership of the protests. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anyway, I, I I digress a little bit, but no, 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 no. But, it's, uh, it's, but it's the point you were making talk. is the point yeah. you were making was the, about Jerry as a uh, a media savvy organizer, right? Which uh, that kind of media savviness and use of uh, of social networking mm-hmm. has really become the main mode of organizing protest today. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, when Jerry died in 94, personal computers were just starting to come around and the internet, you know, but, you know, Jerry was fascinated by that. And according to conversations with his friends, he, you know, he kind of saw this coming, you know, the, the, you know, the, I mean, Facebook hadn't been invented yet, but he was envisioning similar, similar ideas. Um, but yeah, anyway, let's let's talk about the march on Washington for a moment because Dellinger originally was going to march on the Capitol, and Jerry said no. The heart of the military-industrial complex is the Pentagon; it'll mean more. And then Abby jumped in and said, "Well, let's levitate the Pentagon. Let's levitate it. Yeah. Let's levitate." And one of the things I found out in my five years of research for this book we're talking about, called "Did It," Jerry Rubin, American Revolutionary, is that. Jerry was called down to Washington before the march by like the National Park Service or something and had to negotiate with the government <laughs> for how many feet they could levitate the Pentagon. Uh, I love that story, right? Truth is always stranger than fiction. And the other great story uh, for you kids out there that think these guys had a Twitter account or, or there was a, a, a yippee Facebook page, this was all word of mouth. And so, uh, President LBJ heard about this levitation thing and he made an announcement to the press, like, I'm not going to let these dirty hippies do this. That became front page news. And Jerry said, thank you, LBJ. We went from 10,000 people knowing about our event to 3 million. Uh, so, yeah, the hippies... But it, it, 
but the yeah, and I remember I remember that protest very well, and uh, I also remember that it it ended in kind of a not a bloodbath, but a pretty brutal attack on the the protesters. Yeah, not I mean compared to Chicago. Uh, 68, I would say the 67 thing was a, more of a frolic in the park. I mean, there's the, the famous picture of the blonde turtleneck sweater hippie putting the flower into the barrel of a gun. You know, that's at October, 68. That's October 67 at, uh, at the Pentagon. Oh, that was at the Pentagon, right. right. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, I wasn't there, so I don't want to say, like, this is what happened. But from, from my research, I, I think Pentagon was a lot of arrest, but not too much bloodshed. That came a little later. Buildings on Air spoke with Ava Fisher about architecture's public relation problems in the age of Trump. Fisher spoke about what she sees as a lack of moral courage in the architecture lobby, what needs to change, and what lessons architecture can draw from other trades. Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn airs the first Saturday of the month at 2 p.m. Eva, uh, how are you? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to be alive in this, in this moment in architecture. I gotta tell you. Yeah, it's a, it's a wild <laughs> time. <laughs> it's a wild time. Uh, I, yeah, I, like, there's just so much happening in the, in the news. Um, I, and I, I can't believe it. And it feels like changes in the air, but, um, with change, we're kind of having, like, constantly throwing all of the bad stuff <laughs> in our face all the time. <laughs> Yeah. You know, uh, a friend of mine introduced me to the word panglossia recently, which is, um, to, to paraphrase the definition, is the state of being utterly optimistic, uh, despite possibly having no factual basis for this optimism. And I thought, <laughs> finally, a word that describes me. Yes, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's, is that from Candide, I think? Uh, yeah. Yes. It is. Uh, My uh, middle school English classes coming to good use. Um, (laughs) But Eva, I'm excited to talk to you. Um, Maybe you can give give yourself a kind of more full introduction. Uh, Tell us who you are, what you do, where you are. Um, And um, um, the thing that we're going to talk about today is architecture's PR problem, which I think is an interesting topic. Um, So yes, who, who is Eva Hagberg Fisher? (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I do go by Eva Hagberg-Fisher. I I debated endlessly with myself what I was going to do when I got married, Um, and I just recently reinserted my, I guess, born born name. I don't want to say maiden name. So yeah, Eva Hagberg-Fisher. I live in the Bay Area. I'm completing a PhD in visual and narrative culture, which is a one-person department. I'm the only person in that department. (laughs) I uh, created it for myself at UC Berkeley. Um, And it's a mix of architecture, art history, uh, history, and American studies. Um, And I'm looking at, I will not give you the 45-minute version of my dissertation, but the (laughs) 42nd one. Maybe another episode. I'm looking at the origins of architectural PR as a professional practice. And, um, And I'm really interested in how there's a sort of constant interchange between the personal and the professional, and I think that that really applies to our present moment. So I do that. Um, I also quietly whisper at architects and give them advice. <laughs> um, that's, my, that's my 
other day job. And then I also am an essayist and an author, and I have a, a book coming out next year, which has nothing to do with architecture, though it does briefly describe the early 2000s in New York and my architecture career there. I was an architecture critic for a long time. So I think that's it. I'm also a trained yoga teacher. Oh, I had no yeah. idea. <laughs> yeah well uh, like yeah, I, I i warned you in advance that the way that i like to run the show is you know i think about it like a good conversation at a bar about architecture with smart people and we put it on on air um for folks to listen to when they're not at a bar like when they're at the office plugging away on revit or whatever um or having a relaxed saturday um as folks are now um and 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 usually the way that i kick off that conversation um is by asking a really unfair big question uh so uh, and i gave you i gave you fair warning um so so <laughs> but 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 uh beautiful poetry for this unfair question is not expected um but the the, the question is like does architecture have a pr problem and, and kind of what is it um you know I, I that that's a big question to answer um but what, what do you think um I, I mean i would say yes yes a thousand times yes um, and I'm glad that you asked the follow-up so that we have more to talk about than, than <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I mean, I think architecture has a couple PR problems. And one of them is internal and one of them is external. And I think that fundamentally, people don't really know what architects do. And this is not a new observation. This is not an Eva Hagberg-Fisher copyright observation. Um, many people, many smart people have made this point before, that, that architecture does have this sort of fundamental inability somehow to, or architects have an inability to, to really explain to the public what they do and why it's important. So an example of that is one of the architects that I work for, I sometimes interface with, with potential clients and they called me and said, so, so if we hire this architect, would he be the one deciding what materials we put, like, on the front? Like, would he be in charge of the facade, or does he just do the design part? Oh, wow. And th these are people who are thinking of paying somebody, you know, 4 or $5 million for a house. So you would assume that they have some sort of, like, general familiarity with how the world works. Um, and, you know, I had to be very gentle and say, oh, yes, so, you know, architects, they, they sort of do all of it. Um, so that's, that's one PR issue. I mean, the other PR issue is that I think um, there's such, you know, there's so much rhetoric right now about how divided our country is, and I think that architectural practice is, is equally as divided. Um, there are factions. The, the great um, quote that I've heard attributed to Kissinger that academia is so brutal because the stakes are so low, I think really applies to architecture, which, gets, which ties back to this larger problem, which is mm. that the stakes are so low because it is fundamentally undervalued in, in the world. Um, and I use the world very loosely and unspecifically, and I'm, I'm happy to get dragged for that on Twitter later. Um, <laughs> but so that's, that was sort of the pre, let's say pre-Richard Meyer PR problem. Mm -hmm. um, and now I think that we have a massive PR problem, which is more internal than it is external. I think people that haven't been in architecture don't really maybe know what this moment is all about and how architecture's hashtag me too moment is seems to me and seems to others so intricately tied to architecture architecture's larger 
labor problem, larger value problem, all these things that's sort of all connected um, in this, as you said, I think really uncomfortable but also productive moment. Yeah. Well, and maybe as a, as a follow-up to that, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering how kind of like PR like can help or hurt these things, um, and, and I think you're you're well well poised to answer the question because you know like you know me being a kind of like dogmatic lefty usually when I hear PR I'm like ah like those are the folks that go and put a slick on like you know uh, uh, you know like what what are massive problems and kind of uh, cover them up or something right or or, or try to make them seem um, uh, palatable and and I think that that's not exactly what we're talking about or how you how you think about PR maybe maybe it's that like you know you take the the public part of public relations <laughs> seriously or want the the relation to be a healthy one <laughs> or or an honest one or something like this um, but but yeah I don't, can you speak to that at all yeah absolutely so I um, I mean I, I have a similar I don't know knee jerk might be too strong but maybe let's say a similar immediate reaction when I hear PR which is why I don't even really want to say that I do PR, but then I think, no, I should reclaim PR on behalf of <laughs> smart people who care about architecture, which is what I consider myself. So um, I think you had a couple questions, but I think that there are many different ways of doing PR. One way is what we just saw, again, Richard Meyer's office do in the New York Times in the most recent story, which I can't recall exactly, but the quote was something like, well, First of all, these allegations are over a decade old. Second of all, it was a different time. Third of all, you know, shrug emoji. <laughs> um, that is the kind of PR that you're talking about, right? Yeah. Which is crisis management and bad crisis management. And on Twitter, I fixed it for Richard Meyer and partners, and I said, here's, here's, here's some free PR advice. You know, quote, we were wrong. We are so sorry. We will do differently starting today. Um, and so I think that's an example of of public relations that is somehow trying to actually change a practice and make it congruent. Hmm. Um, so to take a sort of broader perspective than, um, you know, hire me to be your spokesperson, which is not what I'm saying, it's, I think, I think that the, the publicist has a very specific role, and this is what I look at historically, is architects are very, very, very good at designing buildings. Um, Thank you. They are not, yes. Uh, <laughs> they are not so good at, at constantly keeping up with the media landscape and with the changing tides of public opinion. And so a lot of my clients will want to be in magazines that don't really make sense to me. And then they say, oh, well, I don't even read magazines. I mean, who has time to read magazines anymore? And um, I think it's hilarious that people want to be in magazines that they're not reading, which is a whole different conversation. <laughs> But for our purposes, right, it's important to know that these are different jobs, right? So I'm not a good designer. People ask me for advice about their kitchen renovations, and I'm like, do not, do not ask me for this advice. But if they ask me for advice about how to talk about their upcoming kitchen renovation in such a way that Dwell Magazine might be interested, that's a skill that I have. And to bring it into the sort of friendlier, more activist, more public focused way of understanding public relations, I think what PR people in architecture can do 
is very subtly convince the public to care about architecture, which ultimately could lead to more people hiring architects, which ultimately could lead to less scarcity and fear in the profession, which could ultimately lead to better and more equitable pay practices, labor practices, et cetera. Um, so I do think that, you know, and maybe this is, I'm just trying to self-aggrandize for the nice kitchens that I do send to, to Dezine, um, but I think that there is a way in which if we just sort of keep repeating that this, this work is important, this work is specialized, this work is not everybody can do it. You can be great at Pinterest, but that doesn't mean that you're a good designer because mm. designers and architects have gone to school and they've practiced this. Um, so that's a sort of like state of the field, again, pre, pre-architecture's moment. Is, is what I see the role of the publicist as being. I think now, um, I mean, I think that the, the PR people, the spokespeople, they have a real responsibility right now to, I think, you know, tell the truth about what's going on and just look at themselves and, um, and take, take their skills, which are language and communicating with the media, to take some sort of moral stand. I mean, I, I, I got to tell you, like, the lack of moral fortitude in this industry is just crushing me right now. Size matters, size matters, Smith, Kyle, Seisman, Kowski. Right, I have to be real quiet. It's 3.45 on Tuesday morning, and I'm pilfering food and stuff. From the cult pro, I'm pretty good at knowing exa- uh, I'm pretty good at, at knowing exactly where to step, but I don't want to wake no one up. Last time I tried to do this, I I almost oh, who's that? What the? Who the heck would be knocking around this time of night? See, you can't just do this blind. You mustn't like plot your course in the dark. You have to know what you want, and where it is before you take it. was that? All right. All right, here we go. And what do I want here? This, I want the nacho cheese to reap. Oh, 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 what was that? There's something in here with me, whatever it is. I, it's gone. Okay, I got to make this quick. All right. I got the chips. Next on my list is salsa. Here we go. Alright, let's see now. I need. Let's check the ice box. Uh, really. Oh, oh dice cube! Oh. Ah! Oh. My bad. Get off me! Ah, get off me! Oh, oh my, oh, my face! Oh, my beautiful face just got scratched! Oh. Oh. I gotta get to the closet. Look, I get Alright. I'm in the closet. I think a very small humanoid creature with blades for hands was stabbing me. If I don't make it, this will be my last will and testament. I gotta find a way out of here. It's in here with me. Yeah, I gotta get the light. <laughs> Come on out, you coward. 
Here it comes, I can see his teeth shining in the shadows. Oh, it's Dash. Jamie's cat friend. <laughs> you sure are a watchdog here, buddy, aren't you? I'm sorry I scared you. Just take my chips and salsa and be on my way. <laughs> Dash, what the fuck is your problem? These are my chips, Dash. You can't have them. You can't have my chips. All right, all right, take the chips. All right. Yoink, those are my chips. You can't have my chips. <laughs> Take your stupid chips, Dash. You foiled my plans for the last time, Dash. Mark my words, you won't defeat me. Mark my words. This week on The Trump Diaries, the FBI raids Trump's lawyer on a tip from Robert Mueller. John Kelly says, I'm out of here before colleagues calm him down. More rats leave the sinking ship, including Speaker Paul Ryan. A fire kills one at Trump Tower. And are missiles heading to Syria? These are The Trump Diaries. Day 441, April 5th. In off-the-cuff rant, Trump claimed that a caravan of illegals was causing women, quote, to be raped at levels no one has ever seen before. Trump also repeated his claim that millions of people are voting illegally. Quote, in many places like California, the same person votes many times. You've probably heard of that. They always like to say, oh, that's like a conspiracy theory. Not a conspiracy theory, folks. Millions and millions of people. And it's very hard because the state guards their records. They don't want us to see it. Those remarks came at a West Virginia rally. And Trump is clinging to EPA head Scott Pruitt, despite warnings from John Kelly that Pruitt has to go. Unflattering stories about Pruitt's habits and spending, allegedly close to $3 million of taxpayer money, have pushed Pruitt to the edge. But Trump has resisted, wanting to keep Pruitt on as a replacement for Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Pruitt, who unsuccessfully sued the EPA 14 times as an Oklahoma attorney, has been remarkably sloppy with his attempts to roll back rules, recently sending a court a 38-page document in an attempt to roll back Obama-era rules on car mileage. The document, apparently filled with cut-and-paste talking points from auto manufacturers, baffled legal experts who noted their court was unlikely to accept it. The Obama-era EPA, in enacting those rules, delivered a 1,200-page study on the subject, and it was considered definitive. In a related story, Pruitt demoted five members of his own staff after they raised concerns about his spending. His own chief of staff reportedly is considering resigning. In another gem, the lobbyist couple that Pruitt rented a Capitol Hill condo for $50 a night apparently had to change the locks to evict him. Pruitt didn't leave when his lease ended, causing lobbyists Vicky and Steve Hart to kick him out. Fired State Department head Rex Tillerson spent roughly $12 million on consultants to redesign the State Department. That's around $300 an hour. It is unclear what value this brought. Tillerson oversaw a remarkable hollowing out of the USA's key diplomatic corps. And Robert Mueller seized three bank accounts owned by Paul Manafort. Those accounts allegedly were used to launder money from Russia and Ukraine. Mueller is reportedly using Manafort's accounts to investigate Russian links to Trump. Day 442, April 6th. 
stock markets reeled as China and Trump tit for tariffs, even as the White House scrambled to tell investors the tariffs may never kick in. Following China's move to declare $50 billion worth of tariffs on U.S. goods, Trump proposed an additional $100 billion on Chinese goods. Outside economists who have largely supported punitive action against the Chinese government that has bent trade rules say that for the tariffs to actually bite, they may have to be significantly higher, raising the sobering prospect of a major trade war and a global recession. In a shock, Trump imposed severe sanctions on several key Russian government officials. In a statement, Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin said, quote, the Russian government operates for the disproportionate benefit of oligarchs and government elites. Oligarchs and elites who profit from this corrupt system will no longer be insulated from the consequences of the government's destabilizing activities. The sanctions took direct aim at Putin's inner circle, hitting 17 Russian government officials, a state-owned weapons company, and seven oligarchs. Putin reacted to those sanctions with fury. Corey Lewandowski refused to answer questions from congressional Democrats investigating Trump's ties to Russia, sending them a profane one-word rebuttal. Day 443, April 7th. People are continuing to bail out of the White House. The latest include Trump's top national security spokesman, Michael Anton, and Homeland Security Advisor Tom Bossert. Bossert is departing at the request of incoming advisor John Bolton. North Korea confirmed they would discuss denuclearization in face-to-face -face meetings with Trump. Those meetings are scheduled to be held in either May or June. And a fire broke out at Trump Tower, killing one man. A resident said the phones inside the building didn't work and that, quote, Michael Cohen, who was Trump's lawyer, was texting me and said, are you in the building? I said yes. He said, you better get out ASAP. Trump had previously resisted installing new fire sprinklers into Trump Tower. Day 444, April 8th. Chief of Staff John Kelly threatened to quit last week, storming out of the Oval Office and packing up his belongings. Saying, I'm out of here, guys, Kelly told onlookers. He apparently was talked out of the move by Kirsten Nielsen and Jim Mattis. In a sobering assessment, the Congressional Budget Office said the U.S. budget deficit will surpass $1 trillion by 2020. That is two years ahead of forecast. The Republican tax cuts were passed on the premise of unprecedented growth. To forestall that deficit, that appears now to be wildly unrealistic. The chairman of the Sinclair Broadcast Group met personally with Trump to sell a new service the company invested heavily in. The tech, which would allow users to broadcast content directly to anyone's phone, is deeply controversial. Sinclair is attempting to buy Tribune Corporation, an acquisition which has been heavily criticized as anti-competitive even by right-wing outlets. Sinclair has been unabashedly pro-Trump in their coverage and were recently criticized for forcing all their local announcers to read a script bashing other news outlets. Day 445, April 9th. Trump vowed to make a major decision after a suspected chemical attack in Syria killed dozens of people. Calling it an, quote, animal barbaric act, Trump in a first directly criticized Putin, Russia, and Iran for backing, quote, animal Assad in a tweet. Quote, everyone's going to pay a price. Putin will, everyone will. 48 civilians have now been killed in that gas attack. Day 446, April 10th. The FBI raided the office of Trump's personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, in a dramatic move that upped the pressure on an embattled president. The FBI seized Cohen's business records relating to payments to Stormy Daniels and potentially a case of bank fraud. The move likely came on a tip from Robert Mueller. The FBI raid sought information on the women Cohen paid off allegedly to protect Trump. The FBI believes that might have constituted bank fraud and violated campaign finance law. In addition, the FBI is now investigating American Media Incorporated, the owner of the National Enquirer's reported catch and kill of former playmate Karen McDougal's story. She alleges she had a consensual affair with Trump. 
This raid, which is highly unusual, was signed off on by FBI head Rod Rosenstein, signaling that investigators believe they have a slam-dunk case. The White House said he was unsure if Cohen still represented Trump. Trump delivered an eight-minute rant about the read to reporters, claiming it was, quote, an attack on our country in a true sense. He falsely claimed that the FBI broke into Cohen's office and that attorney-client privilege was dead. In fact, client privilege does not shield you in a criminal investigation. He then accused his own Justice Department of perpetrating a witch hunt. Trump also said, quote, why don't I just fire Mueller? Well, I think it's a disgrace what's going on. We'll see what's happened. But I think it's a really sad situation when you look at what happened, and many people have said you should fire him. Trump also mused about firing FBI head Rod Rosenstein, criticized Jeff Sessions, and claimed Hillary Clinton had committed unspecified crimes. As a point of fact, those raids were conducted by the Public Corruption Unit of the Federal Attorney's Office in Manhattan with the full authority of the FBI. Despite Trump's allowed claims of bias, a Republican-appointed former FBI director authorized a Republican-appointed Deputy Attorney General, who then authorized an FBI field office known for being staunchly conservative. Sarah Huckabee Sanders later told reporters that Trump, quote, certainly believes he has the power to fire Mueller and later claimed, we have been advised Trump can also fire Mueller. This legal position is widely considered to be incorrect. Ranking Republicans also pushed back with Chuck Grassley saying it would be suicide for Trump to fire Mueller. If a partisan Senate bill to protect Mueller suddenly moved forward in the Senate in the wake of Trump's comments, it is now expected to come to the floor on Wednesday. Mark Zuckerberg revealed his company has been subpoenaed by Mueller over Russian interference in the election and that Facebook is cooperating. He also told congressmen that Facebook is in an arms race with Russian hackers. Senators appeared deeply skeptical of Zuckerberg's testimony, with California's Kamala Harris pinning Zuckerberg down several times on points of fact. The USA is expected to order missile strikes on Syria in the next 24 hours. The strikes are expected in response to a poison gas attack covered out by government troops on rebels and civilians. Day 447, April 11th. Trump told his aides in December to shut the Mueller investigation down. The move sparked by reports of Mueller's investigations into Deutsche Bank, where his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, but not Trump, has significant holdings, enraged Trump. Those reports, which proved to be flawed, ultimately led Trump's aides to cause him to back down. It is the second known time Trump has tried to fire Mueller. And an assessment of the alleged issues EPA head Pruitt has used to justify expensive first-class travel and security found no evidence of credible threats. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island obtained a confidential memo written by Pruitt's own security detail which found no threats to Pruitt's person. Pruitt has spent nearly $3 million on elaborate security and expensive travel, including round-the-clock protection. Pruitt has faced harsh language from people upset about the EPA's direction, but his own security detail said that the threat to the administrator was being, quote, inappropriately mischaracterized. Trump tweeted this morning that missiles will be fired in Syria and they will, quote, be coming nice and new and smart. Trump also tweeted that Russia should not partner with a gas-killing animal who kills his people and enjoys it. Trump also said Russian relations were worse than ever in a separate tweet. And Paul Ryan became the latest high-profile Republican to quit, stunning the House on Wednesday with his resignation. Ryan, who is just 48, will not stand in Wisconsin, is expected to cede the speakership to Stephen Scalise or Kevin McCarthy. Ryan's move also may signal a wave of GOP defections. One hour after Ryan announced his retirement, a prominent Florida House member, Dennis Ross, also announced he will not stand. The moves signal the difficulty the Republicans face in maintaining control of the Congress in what is expected to be a midterm wave election. And a conservative commentator in St. Louis was fired after he claimed he was, quote, hanging out getting ready to use a hot poker on a survivor of the Parkland, Florida school shootings. Jamie Ullman made the assault threat against David Hogg. He was a prominent commentator on the Sinclair Broadcast Network. Hogg, who was 17, tweeted that he actually wished that people would focus on the victims of gun violence. 
Left-leading MSNBC's ratings surged by 30% this year as Fox and CNN reported steep declines. In other numbers, just 25% of people aged 18 to 36 trust Donald Trump. These are the Trump Diaries. Bad at Sports spoke with artist Gwendolyn Zabicki on her love of painting and how she hates curating shows. Zabicki, whose new works are an exhibit at Carthage College, also spoke about group shows and teaching. Bad at Sports airs every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Gwendolyn, uh, you <laughs> yeah. currently have a show up at a place called Carthage College, and it is a two-person show with Ann Tebby called At Home. Do we need to make a disclaimer? Oh, uh, yeah, I guess... We you like guys should know that I work at Carthage College, so yeah. there's a little bit of overlap there. Um, so you have a show up through April 22nd. Uh, it's titled At Home. And uh, tell us a little bit about the work that is in the show. Well, I have uh, – well, first, thank you for having me on this show. No, no. Oh, my God. Do thank you. Dump that. Yeah, dump, dump that. <laughs> I've always wanted to be on this don't show. Th- don't thank us until we get to the end and you right. see how it feels. Oh. Yeah, it could really turn south here. Um, thank should you. We, should we start with you are a painter? Yes. Um, Maybe. I don't know if Ryan said that. I don't think I, I said that. I guess he said it's a two-person oh. painting show. It's a two-person show. Myself and Ann Tebby. Um, I have admired Ann Tebby's work for a long time. Uh, me too. Oh, yeah. This was, you asked, like, who do you want to show with? And mm-hmm. I, I said, oh, Ann Tebby. And I uh, I asked her. And your eyes twinkled. Yes, my eyes twinkled. Hard for the radio audience to see, but there's a twinkle happening. It was like I asked her out on a date. I was like, do you want to show with me? <laughs> yes, no, maybe. <laughs> Circle. Circle one. <laughs> Um, that sounds like a pairing of like the, the real and the hyper real. Yeah. How did you approach, did you make new work for the show or were you using paintings that you have made previously? How did you approach showing with a, I don't know, can I say Chicago legend on there? I think, I think we did. I don't think I have to dump that. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah, I was nervous, sweaty. Um, yeah. hard to hold a paintbrush. Yeah, I made so I made some new work, and then I had some um, existing work that I had been wanting to show someplace. Um, so previously unseen work. Yes, um, and yeah, and Tebby has been. She's kind of after the same thing. Her work is completely different from mine. Totally. But, um, interiors, uh, lots of detail. Uh, her work has been described as Proustian. Um, oh, by whom? Uh, somebody somewhere on the. Proust talked about Aunt Tebby in in his in his uh, written work. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, she's two hundred years old, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, uh, I um, yeah, I, I was I was honored. Um, but yeah, the mirrors. I've been painting mirrors for maybe two years, um, and I always I always tell my my painting students that painting is about learning to see um and uh, god i'm nervous don't be nervous. don't be nervous <gasps> oh it's like a the radio is just like a it's like a reflection like a mirror uh, <laughs> just, just, as long as you don't listen to yourself afterwards you'll be just fine. remember that nobody listens to this so oh, yeah 
Shout out to our fans <laughs> in Alaska. Yeah. Ooh, the boards are lighting up with complaints. <laughs> oh um, so yeah, did you feel like you needed to kind of respond to the, her work kind of shows these like splayed out interiors and your work kind of shows, and correct me if I'm wrong at any point, uh, like a kind of more intimate snapshot, I would say, of like a interior. Did you feel like you had to, I don't know, like show more to show with Aunt Toby or would, how did you like approach that kind of relationship between the two painting works? Well, I, I think we're after a lot of the same things. Um, her work has been described as domestic, so has mine. Um, the mirror paintings came from a larger series about cleaning, <laughs> which... Um, which is maybe the most domestic pursuit. Probably, yeah. Um, but uh, there, I gave a talk at Carthage College, and I talked about this essay by Pat Minardi called The Politics of Housework. And it is a wonderful essay that I recommend, if you haven't read it, Google it. You'll find it. Read it. Um, I tell people, if you have had or currently have a messy roommate or domestic partner this is a you could just slide this essay under their door under their pile of laundry <laughs> yeah um but she basically breaks down all the reasons why people don't do their fair share of the housework and it it is it like she gives every excuse one can give wow that sounds like such a, a useful document it is. Uh. <laughs> It's Ryan looks so nervous. No, I'm sorry. Right. Just He's just a, like has a little bit of a cleaning bit of indigestion. In like, oh God, have I done the? This, so, the do you, article... are you? Yeah, did you make paintings that kind of responded to like the, the outlines of the article? Yes. So the paintings I made were paintings about cleaning, and they were about surface. Um, I have found in my own life that um, people, mostly women, come up with very brilliant, creative. Um, problem-solving methods when it comes to cleaning. Um, my mother, for example, used our old underpants as dust rags. She had four children, and we generated a lot of socks and underwear. <laughs> generated. Nobody I'd, wanted. You, you were also part of a sweatshop yes. down in the basement where she made you knit socks and underwear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, when you walk into Carthage, is that what you see, kind of like mirrors reflecting ratty underwear? <laughs> vibe you know I, I should have done that but no um so but but that's where the mirror paintings came from um cleaning paintings about cleaning paintings about surface uh my grandmother was uh she actually said don't buy windex buy uh just use vinegar like it's much easier it's cheaper um it smells funnier it, yeah it, the smell goes away um <laughs> after a while yeah i mean i also come from a Mom, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have one of those. Breaking news. She tells me she tells me to put coffee grounds in places, yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah, I mean, but I sometimes mess with vinegar. <laughs> I sometimes make a salad in a, dressing. I don't put. I do think of clear vinegar as cleaning only, though. Yeah, like it's not for eating. No, it's that's, for cleaning. That's what balsamic vinegar is for. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. But these paintings, these the series of paintings came from um, cleaning, from mm -hmm. these very thrifty, innovative methods um, that I largely see, go see. unseen. And um, out of those came the mirror paintings. I started um, spraying mirrors with vinegar, <laughs> and 
and those drips and those those bubbles oh. yeah yeah became like whoa like paintings about surface this is a, a painting of nothing when you look at a mirror it's gray and more gray and more nothing um and then the drips and the vinegar are what kind of help you figure out what it is you're looking at they distort things but they're also um they kind of help you like what is this a window people get confused they look at i I i've always loved i mean this is weird but i've always loved paintings of glass and reflective surfaces because of how uh deeply revealing they are yeah (laughs) well they they parallel one each each other really well uh you know both about addressing surface and picture plane Mm -hmm. and interiors it would be amazing if you did a show with someone where the mirror like reflects the other painting like if you knew in advance like i'm gonna show with aunt heavy let me like ask her what's in the show Borrow the painting. And borrow the painting and reflect it through my paintings. Because that's the thing is it's about – it's they're of nothing, but they're also of so much. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of like – that's why they're appealing. I remember seeing a painting when I was very young of like a glass bowl and like seeing the things reflected in the glass bowl and being like, wow, yeah. art. <laughs> but, yeah, the the um the story I always tell is a, about a student of mine – who was making a painting of a donut and it was a donut with rainbow sprinkles and he was struggling to get the placement of the sprinkles just right and to get their randomness and he said to me I never really looked before and that that was like that was such a great moment for me because that's that's what painting is painting is learning to see and it's Struggling with the, yeah, randomness of sprinkles and their placement. Color card piled into Studio C for another John Daly session. This cut previews their full session, which will air on April 17th at 5 p.m.
The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. Lumpen Week in Review is overseen by Logan Bay, produced and engineered by Jamie Trecker. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com. Thank you.